From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. Good morning. I'm Larry Mantle. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo issued a warning to other states just over an hour ago saying we are your future. Right now, things are looking rough in New York City with nearly 15,000 cases of COVID-19. Cuomo says the infection rate is doubling every three days. We'll get a picture of what's happening here in Southern California from UCLA epidemiologist Robert Kim Farley. It's our daily question and answer session on the coronavirus. And on a lighter note, many Italians are taking to their balconies each night for communal singing. This as they face the worst of the health crisis. We'll talk with listeners here about the social connection they're seeing. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Good to have you with us. Hope you're holding up well in the face of COVID-19 and the measures being taken to try and contain the spread of the coronavirus, as well, of course, uh, as the health issues here that already are putting some strain on local hospitals. Uh, Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, has said the curve is heightening there not flattening as the spread of COVID-19 is outpacing their uh, public health department's projections. The state with now uh, 25,665 diagnosed cases of COVID-19, New York City alone with nearly 15,000. There at this point are 131 deaths attributed to COVID-19. New York City has over a third of the total number of national cases of COVID-19. The governor talked about the need for 140,000 hospital beds, 40,000 ICU beds, and 30,000 ventilators, uh, and the governor castigating the federal government for FEMA sending only 400 ventilators when the need is nearly 10 times as much. So if this is indeed our future, as the New York governor indicated, the question is how well prepared are we here to deal with that rate of spread of COVID-19? Or are there things here in Southern California that make uh, the way COVID-19 spreads likely different than uh, the boroughs of New York City. Joining us to talk about COVID-19 and to take your phone calls about the coronavirus is Dr. Robert Kim Farley of UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health. Dr. Kim Farley is professor of epidemiology and community health sciences. He was the director of the Division of Communicable Disease Control and Prevention for L.A. County's Department of Public Health. Dr. Kim Farley, good to have you with us. Larry, it's a pleasure to be on your program. First of all, do you think that what New York is experiencing is a preview for us? I think it's certainly a warning sign for us that we need to continue to be prepared and continue to use physical distancing measures that we're doing. I think that we probably will be fortunate to uh, have less dense populations than in New York City, so hopefully that will also help us. What What's your sense of the comparative seriousness with which New Yorkers seem to be taking it versus those of us here in Southern California? 
Well, I think, again, it's mixed in terms of how communities are responding to the safer at home initiatives that we're trying to put into place uh, throughout California and, frankly, throughout the country. Uh, But I think that basically we just need to be working hard to ensure that people understand, even if you're a younger person that may be at less risk of this disease, that you have loved ones at home, your parents, your grandparents, friends or family that may have uh, altered immune systems do, let's say, chemotherapy treatments, et cetera. So we need to make sure that we're doing this not just for ourselves, but for those others as well. This is a chance for you to ask questions every day. We have a noted health authority joining us on AirTalk. Physicians, to answer your questions at 866-893-KPECC. That's 866 866- 893-KPECC. You can also ask on the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. You can post a question to our Facebook page at AirTalk and also tweet at AirTalk, 866-893-KPECC. We get a lot of questions about what seems to make a person more immune than someone else or more resilient to the virus. We certainly know about vulnerabilities, people being older, having underlying health conditions, particularly uh, compromised lungs, that that is, is a high-risk factor. But do we understand the nature of people's immune systems and how they respond? Not fully at this stage. Uh, I think the reason is, is that, again, um, Everyone is really susceptible to this disease because uh, we just have never had it before. Therefore, no one has any natural immunity to it. However, people's individual responses uh, seem to vary. Um, Many are obviously mild, 80% are mild. Uh, For those that have more severe disease, typically, it's as you had just pointed out, Larry, the elderly, those people with underlying medical conditions, but we even still have young people that do uh, come down with serious disease. Uh, What is fortunate, at least it appears that especially children under, let's say, nine years of age are relatively spared from some of the severe consequences that we see the disease. But it doesn't mean that uh, they are immune in the sense that uh, they don't get it. It's just that when they're getting it, it's extremely mild and maybe even asymptomatic. I think that's another thing to realize is that we are only seeing really at the tip of the iceberg when we look at and count the number of deaths or the number of reported cases, especially since our testing has been somewhat limited. The number of reported cases are actually somewhat lower than they really would be. And of course, many of the mild cases might go unnoticed and people would even seek medical care for it or have it be reported. Uh, We have Ariel in Upland who asks, is there ongoing damage to the lungs that can be caused by COVID-19 even after people have have gone a couple weeks and recovered otherwise from the coronavirus? Uh, thank you, Ariel, for that question. Yes, it's very possible that someone might have residual from this disease. Mostly it seems that those people have had been healthy lungs beforehand that do end up uh, having severe disease but then recover seem to do pretty well. But if you've already had pre-existing lung disease, let's say uh, from uh, COPD or bad asthma, things like this, those people may be at more risk of having some higher residual uh, from this even after they've recovered. As I mentioned before on the program, my great-grandmother went through the Spanish flu epidemic and got sick from it, and and her, uh, her immune system never really seemed to recover. I know this is this is a different kind of an illness, but an example of how very serious illness can, for some people, have lasting damage. 
And you know something, Larry, is interesting, too, about the Spanish influenza of 1918-1919 is that it actually particularly and many times actually hits the young. I mean, I imagine your grandmother was young at that. She was a young adult, yeah. Yeah, and my, my, great, uh, my grandfather's uh, first wife, in fact, died of the Spanish influenza. So it was particularly actually aggressive to young people. So in one sense, we're fortunate that COVID-19 is not attacking that demographic. All right. We're at 866-893-KPCC or the Air Talk page, kpcc.org. Every day we're bringing on uh, a medical authority to answer your questions, both about the virus itself, about COVID-19, but also about the public health measures that have been enacted to try and keep us safer. 866-893-KPCC. Denise in Crenshaw Manor in Los Angeles asked, are some of the do-it-yourself protections, like people making their own masks, do they actually provide protection? Uh, Denise, I think the thing to realize is that uh, masks have an important use, especially for healthcare workers who are being exposed to patients, uh, to people who may be caring uh, for someone in the home that has uh, the COVID-19. And it's also they're important for uh, persons who have COVID-19, if they have to leave their room or be outside. So if they cough, the cough particles, the droplet spread that we call it, uh, is contained within that mask. But for the general population walking around, um, mask use is really not uh, that helpful. All right. Dawn in Ontario says, my daughter-in-law is five months pregnant and she's in the healthcare profession. Uh, God forbid she gets the virus. It is it believed there would be a risk to her unborn baby? Yes. Well, for Dawn, I think one of the things to realize is the really uh, the information is still uh, waiting to be discovered in terms of risk to pregnant women as to whether they have higher risk. There's theoretic uh, issues that might uh, predispose to that. Pregnant women's immune systems are lower. Um, I mean, they're just so they're not rejecting also the fetus. But the, uh, so it's not clear that whether that would predispose them. And it's not clear as to what the outcome for uh, the fetus might be. So I think these are just kind of some unknowns that are still waiting to be answered in the scientific community. We're talking with Dr. Bob Kim Farley, UCLA Fielding School of Public Health, professor of epidemiology and community health sciences, uh, formerly with Los Angeles County Department of Public Health, where he directed its Division of Communicable Disease Control and Prevention. Uh, He's also a former staff member of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and formerly with the World Health Organization. He's taking your calls, your questions about COVID-19 every day. We have been so fortunate to have healthcare experts, physicians come on and answer your questions. Today, the same, 866-893-KPECC. Dr. Kim Farley, we're seeing in New York uh, an explosion of cases that, uh, according to the governor there, is outpacing the projections of public health officials. In Italy, of course, we saw the virus just take off. Uh, And is there any evidence that in Italy, for example, the measures that they've taken are starting to show some results? Yes, actually, uh, Larry, that's a good point that you raised. That I think for Italy, they, in a sense, just got behind the curve in terms of implementing these physical distancing measures. And so there was such a large number of people infected. And there is a um, good-sized a portion of the population in Italy that is uh, aged. And so I think that's one of the reasons why it got hit so hard. 
but it looks like, in fact, the number of cases are beginning to, uh, and deaths are beginning to drop a bit. So I think that does give us some, some hope. Um, and also, I, you notice I just used the word physical distancing um, as compared to the social distancing, the term that's often being used. I think we need to try to um, recognize that, you know, we really are trying to keep this space around ourselves. Uh, again, making sure that we're coughing into our sleeve or tissue, uh, that we're not shaking hands, things like this. But we really are trying in this time to actually socially bond. We should be trying to stay close to family and friends um, and, uh, you know, through other methods, though, than physical contact in the sense of phones, uh, email, video conferencing. So we need to really have social bonding in this time of physical distancing. Uh, you've beautifully teed up our conversation later this hour about those moments of real social connection mm. despite the physical distancing. Italy, we have this example, I think it's 8 o'clock every night, Italians uh, in many cities taking to their balconies, uh, doing communal singing, the same song. Um, and so we're going to ask our listeners, what are some of the ways that you've really experienced um momentary highs in your day despite us having the physical distancing measures. That's coming up later this hour. 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Mike tweets at AirTalk, uh, should we be ordering takeout? Is there a chance of exposure through that? I think the, uh, Mike, thank you uh, for the question. I think the, uh, the restaurants are staying open in a sense as a public service for people, uh, but it's only, again, takeout or um, delivery. I think the uh, real concern with restaurants had been, again, people congregating in them, this close uh, being together, not having physical distancing. So I think the real risk from restaurants has been alleviated by going to takeout. So your odds of getting it is someone hands you a bag or leaves a bag for you uh, slim. The odds that you would pick it up from the packaging of the food or from the food, very slim. Very slim. All right. If you have uh, concerns, you can have them you know, leave it on the patio uh, instead of uh, you know, taking it from them. All right. Um, let's see. Uh, Karina in La Cunada asks, we've had this uh, a number of days, but not everybody's listening You know, the same to our same segments, wondering about transmission from pets. There's no, no transmission from petting your dog or, or hanging out with your pet, correct? Correct, Larry. And now is a you know good time for those who have pets. It can be another stress reliever to be with them. Uh, and again, we have everything we can use these days to be able to relieve stress. I understand that uh, in New York, uh, the number of foster um, pets uh, has risen dramatically as people try to again you know bring a pet into the home. Uh, in fact, at this time, to be another way of relieving some of the stress. Also want to remind you, coming up next hour on Air Talk, the future of the domestic airline industry. We're going to be talking about the potential for all domestic air travel uh, to come to a halt because of financial concerns about the airlines and just the few number of people who are taking to the air for domestic travel. That's coming up next hour on Air Talk as we, of course, attend to the latest news from COVID-19. We're closely watching Congress to see what happens there, how speed Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, told CNN a short time ago that they're in the red zone on reaching a, a stimulus deal uh, for COVID-19. So uh, close to crossing the goal line is what what she says. Um, let's see. Uh, Joanne in La Cunada, you're on air talk with Dr. Bob Kim Farley of UCLA. Dr. Barley, my question is, 
if one has been exposed to the virus or actually um, had more than mild uh, symptoms, maybe hospitalized but recovered, will their immunity be there in case we have another pandemic of this virus? Joanne, that's, uh, again, another very excellent question. Yes, we feel that basically after you've been uh, infected and either asymptomatically or with mild disease or even with serious disease, when you recover from that, your immune system now is primed with antibody that will then protect you from future uh, infection. Now, whether that's long-term or short-term in terms of protection, it's not yet clear. We'll have to wait for that timing. But not only will it protect you from an, another event should this occur with COVID-19, but it may be a solution, in fact, as persons who have had the disease recover, uh, they are the ones that can uh, go back to work or go uh, into the healthcare setting knowing that they are not going to be transmitting the disease to others nor getting the disease again. So that may be a way of we slowly come out of this as well. Natalia tweets at AirTalk, um, Dr. Kim Farley, do you think part of the difference in COVID-19 spread uh, and, and that it is going so fast in New York City is a difference of public transportation? L.A. very much a car-centric uh, uh, place. Do you think that has a difference? I think, uh, again, the density of population and the interaction of population in New York City, say with public transportation, just even if you look at the street sidewalks, you know, people very closely knit uh, uh, and uh, all of the all of the social uh, interactions occurring in close physical distances. I think that you're, in one sense, correct that, that our car society, in a sense, uh, makes us more physically distant in our commute, typically. But again, you've got to realize, for the most vulnerable in our society, um, they may have no choices but. Uh, public transportation. We're talking with Dr. Robert Kim Farley, Professor of Epidemiology and Community Health Sciences at UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health. We're going to uh, continue with him very shortly, but I do want to bring up the very important point that it's our spring member drive, which we have suspended in its typical way on air. But we still must raise a million dollars total during this period when we typically would be doing in-depth on air fundraising. Right now, we have a challenge of $20,000 that's coming from one of our KPECC donors, prefer to be anonymous. When we hear from 300 members today, we will unlock that $20,000 challenge. We are 240 members away right now. Let's get this by the end of Air Talk. Let's get this down uh, to at, at least 100 to go for the rest of the day on an hour-per-hour basis. This is where uh, most of of the giving comes in during the KPCC day. It's during these two hours of air talk because you're part of an extraordinarily faithful and giving audience. And and I just want to say we are so sensitive uh, to what what so many of our listeners are going through. You you don't know what your job is going to hold. Maybe you've already lost your job, and so you you've been turned upside down financially. Um, I first want to say we are so sorry and we are with you in spirit as you go through this time of, of financial trial and uncertainty. Uh, so so I want to just say we are sensitive to this, that we know so many of our listeners are in a very insecure place. But if you're someone who is employed, your, your financial well-being is in good shape. 
Could you please contribute now during this dollar-for-dollar dollar match during AirTalk? It would be so meaningful. 866-888-5722 or kpcc.org. We've already heard from thousands of AirTalk listeners in these preceding days. The, the generosity is incredible, how you recognize the need that we're facing and the importance of us being able to provide these in-depth question and answers with medical professionals each and every day on the program not to mention the ones of human connection and the largest conversation you'll find anywhere in Southern California. It's here, 10 to noon, every day on Air Talk. Tens of thousands of people listening and many, many people talking with each other over the course of these two hours. That's what's going to come up on the program later. 866-888-5722. And thank you so much. When we come back... We're going to listen to a little bit of what was an American hit from a Cameroonian jazz saxophonist who had a wonderful career and influenced so many great African musical artists as well as American ones as well. It's an African artist, musician, who actually died of COVID-19. We'll hear uh, his hit coming up when we return in one minute on AirTalk. That's the great Cameroonian jazz saxophonist Manu Dibongo, who died of COVID-19 in Paris at the age of 86 today. This was a hit single for him in 1972, the Cameroonian saxophonist Sol Makosa. And uh, he was also a highly influential figure with other African artists as well as Americans. Anjali Kijo, writing on her Twitter account today, says, Dear Manu Dibango, you've always been there for me from my beginnings in Paris to this rehearsal just two months ago. And he has a wonderful little video of the two of them working on a song together. You're the original giant of African music and a beautiful human being. That's Angelique Kijo sharing. Uh, Sharing her appreciation of the saxophonist Manu Dibango, uh, who from Cameroon became a significant African musical force. We're talking about COVID-19 and uh, also the public health measures being taken to try and control the spread of the virus. We're talking with Dr. Robert Kim Farley, professor of epidemiology and community health sciences at UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health. 866-893-KPCC. Cindy in Westchester wonders, is it possible to make an effective mask at home that you could use when going out in the world? Uh, Cindy, again, the issue of masks primarily are for those people who are healthcare workers that are in contact with patients, uh, for those who are, in fact, patients if they go out of their room so that they can protect uh, uh, others from their cough because it will be contained within the mask. For the general public, we really are at this stage not recommending uh, masks. 
All right, 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. So so for healthcare workers, are the masks necessary for them just because of the volume of people they're seeing so that the odds are raised? Is it the closeness? Is it that they're almost certainly at some point going to be dealing with COVID-19 positive people? Why is it not good for the general public if it's good for healthcare workers? Yes, I think the issue of the closeness of working with people that are ill um, and that, um, again, they will often have also face masks so that any droplet spread wouldn't come into the eyes. And uh, even for healthcare workers, you uh, have to go to the like, N95 mask, which is even a higher order mask, if you're going to be doing especially an aerosolizing procedure, like if you're doing the intubation, uh, putting on person on a ventilator or bronchial lavage where you're trying to get some specimens from deeper in the lungs, these things can generate actual aerosols which typically COVID-19 does not spread by it, normally spread by droplets, which are larger particles that drop to the ground um, in a relatively short distance. But uh, So it's these two different types of masks are for two different types of settings. Can you explain why the shortage of masks? I just have to say for myself, I understand why there aren't enough ventilators, why you wouldn't have tens of thousands of, of ventilators just sitting in storage uh, ready to go. But... I would think that masks, given the small size, that's something that could have been stockpiled for a pandemic and that you could have had literally millions of masks that would be standing by. Why isn't that the case? Well, they do have uh, many masks available through the national strategic stockpiles and even within uh, cities and uh, counties, uh, state levels. I think it's just the sheer uh, amount um, of need at this stage. Uh, masks don't have indefinite life uh, for themselves. Also is another thing to realize. Uh, people don't necessarily realize that, but there is an elastic you know, band to it that can't just be stored uh, forever. So I think that uh, the question always is, is how much insurance policy does one put into these strategic stockpiles? To what level do you stock them? Uh, and what, you know, is, is it the 100-year flood type of situations, a 1,000-year flood, um, and same thing with the type of pandemic that uh, we're experiencing now. Um, I think we're more prepared uh, today than we certainly were, you know, five years ago, and I think some of the lessons being learned during this pandemic will inform our stockpiling for future so that we'll be even more prepared in the future. All right. We're at 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. So we have listeners who want further clarification on pets um, because apparently there are people that believe that the virus could somehow live on the fur of the pet and that it would be transferred that way from one person to another. Can you further elaborate so we can put this to bed? Yes. uh, Thank you, Larry. I think the, the issue of Pets, I mean, they are not themselves coming down with disease that go ahead and and transmit to us. So that's one aspect. Now, the issue of being what we call a fomite, a fancy term for, you know, if you have a surface, including a surface of a pet, um, in the the household, there's just not going to be a problem. Yes, theoretically, if you had someone with COVID-19 that took your pet and they coughed all over their fur and then you petted that fur and put that to your mouth, it's theoretically possible. But as you can see, it's such a, a, a low possibility of something like that happening. 866-893-KPCC. And 
hopefully after you, you know, pet someone else's animal, you'd wash your hands anyway. Uh, 866-893-KPCC, or maybe that's just me. Uh, Look forward to your calls with your questions. You can also ask them on the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Matt tweets at AirTalk, Dr. Kim Farley mentioned recovered patients with immunity being helpful, having them go back to work in aiding in recovery. But given the lack of diagnostic testing in California, will there be ways to confirm immunity via serology testing? Very good point. It again shows that that's one of the reasons I think we need to be ramping up the testing, which is being ramped up. Again, uh, belatedly, we have been slow in testing, uh, but uh, once it can get ramped up enough, especially if we can get to what we call point-of-care tests, where basically uh, the person can be tested and within a half hour know the result of it. Uh, when we have those types of tests and they are plentiful in numbers, then we really can talk about these sorts of strategies of testing larger swaths of people, finding out who's immune, and especially then those would know that they could go back to work or into schools, et cetera, without a concern of getting infected. Justin and La Crescenta asks, uh, in regards to New York being the epicenter of the pandemic in the U.S., have they just been able to get access to more testing? Justin says, I'd imagine if they're testing more people, they'd have the most cases in comparison to other cases. So is this just a testing gap? I think it's a combination, Justin, of the two things. I think that they they have had uh, uh, testing going on uh, more intensively, but I think also just the fact that they are really number, more numbers of cases, too. So I think it's a combined uh, effect. All right. Uh, Lynn and Pacific Palisades, when you bring groceries home from the market, can you catch the virus by touching the same produce and grocery items that others have touched beforehand? Uh, Lynn, again, highly unlikely in the sense that, again, uh, someone would actually have to be coughing on it, uh, things like this, to make uh, it, it likely that that could happen. So I think it's always so it's a good precaution, especially in these days. Go ahead, and when you bring your vegetables home, you know, have them washed off. Um, We are cooking our food anyway. Uh, These sorts of things will all, and you should always be washing your hands before food preparation, before eating. Those are just safety precautions that we should use routinely. And I think if there's a silver lining, uh, Larry, to this, is that um, many of the behaviors that we're trying to promote now in public health uh, that would work also for flu seasons, again, of covering the cough, Um, making sure that you're not going out if you're ill, these sorts of things. uh, Perhaps everyone is paying a lot more attention to it now, and it may actually change behaviors. Uh, Oftentimes, behavior change is one of the most difficult things we can do, but sometimes the most effective things that we can do. But if we can get this teachable moment of COVID-19 to get people practicing new behaviors, these new behaviors uh, hopefully will become habits and these habits will tide us well for other communicable diseases uh, into the future. Let's talk with Dennis in Pasadena. Dennis, I, I understand you have a 95-year-old mother who's being cared for in your home. Your question, please. Yeah, it's actually, thank you. It's in her own home. She has a rotating crew of exceptional home health care workers, a nurse, a physical therapist, and we were wondering about the fact that many individuals are non-symptomatic and the family would like these individuals, not all the time, but just when they're close within, you know, three or four feet or like the physical therapist is putting her through her activities. 
if they could, if it'd be a beneficial to have them wearing masks, we've provided a, a good stockpile of masks for them to. But they don't want to wear them, or they're not wearing them. Convenient, but this whole—we don't know if if somebody's nobody's coughing, everybody's healthy apparently. But I know if the doctor could uh, address this fact, apparently that many people are non-symptomatic. Yeah, uh, Dr. Kim Farley. Yes, Dennis. Uh, I firstly applaud that you've recognized the the vulnerabilities of your 95-year-old uh, relative and that um, we're trying, again, to protect them the most at this period of time. And you're looking at the fact that, well, I've got people coming into the house. I think that, again, it might be good to look at the mix of crew that you have coming in. Perhaps there are some that might not need to be coming in at this stage, Um, something that uh, doesn't need as much intense work. But if you have people that are important for her care, they will still need to be coming. Perhaps maybe they could have a situation where rather than three of them come on three different days, is it possible that one of them might be able to take the shift and come in on the three days? So you're reducing the numbers of people coming in. But I think it is... uh, Good idea that making sure, obviously, when they come into the house, that they, the, the person coming in does not have any symptoms, uh, that when they do come in, they're washing their hands and they're touching uh, your, um, the 95-year-old patient, uh, those sorts of things. So we're just trying to keep that uh, physical barrier as much as we can, but we also need to make sure that people who need care are also getting it at this stage. Uh, and final question for you. Uh, this comes from Gabe writing on the AirTalk page. I've talked to several people who think COVID-19 was made by some conspiracy by China or by the U.S. or some shadow world government. What's the best way to debunk that type of thinking? Yes, Gabe, I think a couple of things. One, there was this uh, rumor about it coming from the uh, Institute of Virology in Wuhan City, and uh, there was like uh, 27 scientists from nine countries, in fact, that, you know, gave out a public letter about the fact that, look, they've studied this virus, they look at the genome, this is a wildlife type of virus that came. It's not something that's been constructed in the lab. So I think some of the things can be debunked in that way, uh, but I think whenever you have... Um, a crisis like this occurring. There is these rumors swirling. I, I kind of like the director general's comment when he uh, the, of the WHO when he said, we need facts, not fear. We need science, not rumors. We need solidarity, not stigma. And that's what I think we need to, to recognize at this time, to have calm heads prevail and recognizing we're all here trying to work on this together. Dr. Bob Kim Farley, thank you, sir, for being with us, taking listener questions. We really appreciate your time. Larry, it's been my pleasure, and I just uh, join your appeal to your listenership uh, to support KPCC. My wife and I are supporters, and uh, I think that's a great work and service that you're doing for everyone. Thank you. We so appreciate that. That's Dr. Robert Kim Farley, UCLA Fielding School of Public Health, Professor of Epidemiology and Community Health Sciences. What he's referring to is membership in KPCC and supporting the work that we do here. We've suspended our typical on-air appeals for you to support KPCC with just doing these very short ones. Um, and the outpouring we've had in the first 39 minutes of air talk is extraordinary. Every day, you're blowing my mind with the kind of support that we're getting. We're working on a $20,000 challenge today coming from a a listener member who'd prefer not to have his name shared. But it's a $20,000 challenge when we hear from 300 listener members today. We are 
205 away. It's been an extraordinary outpouring of support. I thank you so much for your generous giving. 205 to go. Uh, This is phenomenal. Thank you. Because once we hit a million dollars, we can stop. But we've got to raise a million dollars during this spring fundraising period so that we can keep staffed up and bring you this kind of coverage. Thank you so much. 866-888-5722 or kpcc.org. Back in one minute. As Italy has been the world epicenter this past week for uh, COVID-19 diagnosis and fatalities to the coronavirus, every night Italians in many cities have taken to their balconies, observing physical distancing, but engaging in communal singing, singing the same song, uh, expressing uh, the joy and being able to connect with others, even as their lives have been dramatically changed by the physical distancing measures uh, that have taken place there in a, in a country that, of course, tourism is, is a central part of its economy and social life on the streets, in cafes, uh, is just is just central to being Italian. Here in the United States, as we are observing physical distancing for a somewhat shorter uh, period of time, we're, we're fewer days into it than Italians, I'd like to hear from you what are the ways in which, despite uh, how our lives have changed and some of the barriers that we're now experiencing, what are the ways you've observed people connecting to each other, either in artistic expression or in, in joyful interactions that, that somehow we've resiliently been able to engage in despite being locked down? 866-893-KPCC, 866-893-5722, or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. It's just you and me talking about what you've seen that has been a particularly beautiful beautiful thing, a poignant thing, the way someone has been able to connect or groups of people have been able to connect despite limitations. The Italians giving a great example. Now, we don't all live in areas where we have balconies to go out on that we can communally sing, but maybe there are other ways, smaller scale, that uh, there's been joyful connection uh, one to another while still observing these physical distances. 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. You can also tweet at AirTalk or post on our AirTalk Facebook page. Uh, Parker uh, uh, McDaniels, our engineer, is part of an Instagram video chat with multiple people and friends. And he says they're always on it. You can just almost any time. There are people just connecting with each other, finding ways of socially connecting despite um, uh, despite the barriers that we are all living with. And uh, 
Matt D'Angelo-Antonio, one of our producers who's working from home, he was out over the weekend taking a morning a stroll with his wife, uh, Allie, and uh, they were walking in their Altadena neighborhood and walking by a senior living facility. And several of the residents of the facility were out on their patios and they started spontaneously singing together, Oh, What a Beautiful Morning, that classic song from Oklahoma. And Matt just talked about how for he and Allie, it was an incredibly touching scene of these older Altadenans living in a senior living facility who weren't able to physically be next to each other. And, you know, a lot of senior living facilities have weekly sing-alongs where they gather. I used to go uh, and join in uh, at the place in Long Beach where my great-uncle Bob lived, and we'd all sing together um, at those gatherings. It was great. Guests could come in and residents could come in. We can't do that now. So at the Montecedro Senior Living Facility in Altadena, they did it from their balconies, Eight. 866-893-5722. Chris and Encino, where have you seen this? Either you were part of it or you witnessing it. Yeah, I got a Facebook post that was just forwarded to me from people that I didn't know, and it was three undergrads from the University of Minnesota that were starting a uh, playwriting contest about the coronavirus. And they put out a few different elements that had to be in this short play, and uh, I wrote one because I'm, I'm a playwright, but I asked my son, who's 14, if he wanted to do it as well. And he's so bored at home, he said yes. And he had an amazing time doing it. They expected 100 entries, maybe. They got over 2,500. Wow. Yeah. And uh, they, they picked 11 winners, which my son and I were not one of them, which is fine. And they're going to have a live reading tomorrow night on YouTube Live. And I think it's just a fantastic way to get people together in this time. That's great. I'm so anxious to hear how it goes. So tonight's the reading? Tonight's the reading. I'm not sure how they're going to do it. They said they're going to keep social distance or at least maybe do it from remote areas. Yeah. Great to, to see it. All right. Sounds great. Thank you, Chris and Encino, 866-893-KPCC. Where are you filing, finding interconnected happiness, either firsthand or just observing it. 866-893-KPECC. Lindsay in Chino Hills, you're on Air Talk. Yeah, this is Lindsay. Um, I am a member of a local Dungeons and Dragons group. Uh, it's a great way to meet and socialize together, usually in person with a bunch of random strangers in Forge Connection. Uh, I joined in November and when California got its quarantine orders, within the span of, I want to say, five days, the event organizers, um, shout out to Violet and uh, Jesse at Game Empire, uh, they organized a massive online uh, playtime. So, Have you been doing this or is this to come? I'm sorry? Have you been doing it so far? Have you, have you been part of this, or is, is this still is this planned to come up soon? We just had our, our first one last Saturday. Um, right. How was it? Another one in a week. How was it? It was amazing. I got to, you know, talk with a bunch of new people I've never met before. I've, I was feeling genuinely very depressed. I didn't want to do it at all. But I spent 12 hours socializing and 
forgetting all of this worry and trouble and just getting to have fun with friends. Oh, it's wonderful, especially because you joined the group to do it in person, Dungeons and Dragons, and 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 now that now it's converted to uh, to doing it online. That's that's terrific, Lindsay. Thank you so much. Eight six six eight nine three KPECC or the Air Talk page kpecc.org. We'll take more listener calls. Uh, all of the Italians who come out to sing together every night. What sort of group activity have you seen that's been able to happen despite social physical distancing, but socially connecting? 866-893-5722. Back in just one minute. This magic moment So different and so new Was like any other Until I kiss you Benny King, are you having magical moments despite the physical limitations of our public health response to COVID-19? I'd like to hear about them, the ways that you're socially connecting with people that lift your spirits, that are giving uh, your life something that might be otherwise lacking with physical distancing. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. I have to tell you, I've, I've always loved my job. I consider it um, a real privilege to get to do this two hours every day. But I don't know that I've ever appreciated it as much as in these past several days since our COVID-19 coverage, because I get to talk with you. And for me, it's, 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 I have to say, it buoys my spirits to, to hear all of our wonderful AirTalk listeners calling in. And so uh, that, for me, is my joy, getting to have a chance to hear from you. Uh, like you, Lee Ting in Baldwin Park, thank you for joining. What are the ways you're connecting? Hi, Larry. My pleasure. So I'm working from home, and I used to go to gym. Uh, right now, gyms are closed, but my fitness instructor, he formed one uh, Facebook group chat where all the members from the gym can join, and we work out almost every day from the week. And his name is Rudy. Very good. So we'll shout out to Rudy for that. So it's, it's helping you um, stay social as well as fit? Yes. Great. Then at least one hour per day to work out together, and we will chat how our day's going and everything. It was fantastic. That's great. Li Ting, thanks so much. 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Jonathan in Santa Monica says, I'm in a veterans writing group that's offered through the VA. We meet on Zoom, and we do line edits. It's hard for me because I don't have home internet, so I have to use my phone. I'm not technically inclined, but it's still been a very good experience. Jonathan, thank you so much. Uh, Joshua writes on the AirTalk Facebook page, I'm a part of the indie music scene in L.A., and live streams on Instagram have been a really cool way to connect with others. Oh, and 12-step meetings using Zoom, Joshua writes, really helpful for recovery and human connection. Uh, Joshua, that's wonderful to hear about. I've been thinking a lot about those in 12-step programs who go to meetings on a regular basis and whether the um, online 
social media way of doing it can provide that same sort of connection. And I'm delighted to hear that it can. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Betsy's in Palms. Betsy, what are the ways you're socially connecting? Yes, I am uh, involved in a spiritual meditation group. And this morning we had a Zoom uh, meditation with our uh, our leader, um, and there were about 85 participants. It was an international connection uh, where it was just so uplifting, and we got to all meditate together and connect uh, via Zoom. It was fantastic. In in some ways, even with the uh, the barrier of of doing it. Uh, online, did it um, did it provide comfort in a way perhaps beyond even a typical meditation session? Well, it was uh, it <laughs> the energy. We all felt the energy together, and um, it was it was beyond. I would say, I, I would say that it was beyond what would be just a typical. Typical yeah. meditations, especially if it w- normally we meditate on our own and then get together in groups uh, at various times in, in various parts of the world. Um, but when there's a group meditation, it's always, always stronger. And I know that we all felt each other's energy. Yeah, I would just think that in this time, having this ability, even with it being on Zoom, would just would be a powerful experience. Betsy, I, I appreciate your call. Thank you. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. I just got an update that we've had 50 listeners already during AirTalk who've contributed to support the program, this opportunity to bring listeners together. This is phenomenal. Thank you for your generous support for us to get both the the important information about COVID-19, but also this chance to have this big group conversation and for us to learn how other people are dealing with the limitations uh, put on us physically because of COVID-19. 866-893-KPCC to, to call in, contribute to our conversation. 866 888 5722 to make your financial contribution to to help us fulfill this dollar for dollar $20,000 challenge. Let's talk with Margaret in Burbank. Margaret, what are the ways you're getting social joy despite the physical barriers? Hi. Well, for me, I've been trying to think of ways that I can spend my time doing non-digital things. And something I've been thinking a lot about was, as a kid, how many card games I would play with my family and my cousins. And so recently on a FaceTime conversation with my mom, I was expressing this to her and we were able to, well, I grabbed a deck of cards and was trying to relearn how to play solitaire. She was walking me through it. So it was like nice to relearn something like physical and I'm looking forward to jumping on a call with her again and she's going to teach me how to play Liverpool. All right, very good. All right, Margaret in Burbank. Thanks very much. 866-893-KPECC 
Uh, Mark in Indio says, I have six siblings. They live all over the country. And one of my siblings started a group text message. It's relatively low tech, but it really means a lot. And Mark, I think it's interesting because I would bet that even if you stay somewhat in touch with your six siblings, it's not a regular occurrence, maybe, like the group text is. And now you really make a point of it that in the physical isolation now those relationships mean all the more, and you're really checking in with each other. At least I've heard that a lot from other people. Uh, Coley in Silver Lake. Coley, I've got about 30 seconds real real quickly. Hi. I have a little wine shop, a neighborhood wine shop in Silver Lake, and we're only doing delivering curbside pickup right now and making people stand six feet away. So it's been really great to see all the regulars, you know, kind of, coming through and still being able to talk. And then we're also going to start um, online wine tastings next week with a lot of my out-of-work sommelier friends. So you'll be able to tune in with a professional, pick up the wine at the shop, and then have a little wine fun education. And you can also, you know, log in with friends as well. Hey, thank you so much, Coley. We appreciate it. And Mel in Manhattan Beach says... I have a friend who over the last several years, uh, we try and get together Wednesday afternoons for a short lunch. This week, we're going to do it over the phone, like we always do, trying to keep a sense of normalcy. Mel, that's wonderful. You can share on our AirTalk page, kpcc.org, the ways in which you are socially connecting in a group even with physical distancing being honored. Hey, thank you so much for participating in this phone conversation. We'll have more to come, of course, in the second hour. And thank you for your financial support. Right now, a $20,000 challenge, 866-888-5722. Good morning. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us. Throughout this hour, as well as the previous, we're focused on COVID-19, the latest news related to the coronavirus, including its economic impact, the social effect on our lives, and of course, uh, the direct questions we're taking every day on the nature of the virus itself, what we're learning about it, and uh, what we need to know to keep ourselves safer from COVID-19. We begin this hour with a focus on the airline industry. A Wall Street Journal article uh, says that several U.S. airlines are considering a voluntary freeze on domestic passenger flights. The federal government also looking at a possible restriction of domestic flights uh, because it's difficult to get air traffic controllers uh, due to COVID-19 and concerns about spread of the virus. With us to talk in more detail uh, from CNBC, reporter who covers the airline industry, Leslie Josephs. Leslie, thank you very much for being with us. What have you been able to learn about how seriously airlines are considering shutting down? Well, airlines have been looking at this. Uh, we actually reported on this last week, um, and this has been sort of like a contingency plan, something that uh, could happen. They don't know whether there's going to be a government shutdown, um, but it's something that airline executives have been sort of preparing for um, because the drop in traffic has been just so sharp and so abrupt um, that it's, it's something that they have to kind of, this is suddenly in play. 
And um, we, can you talk a little bit about the uh, economics of, of airlines? Would they save considerable money by shutting down their operations? Because I assume there are costs also associated with doing that, just given maintenance of aircraft that aren't flying. Right. And, and what you've seen, if you looked on social media, some of these very empty flights with kind of a smattering of people, maybe you have like six people on a, on a flight or 20 people on a wide body plane, um, which are somewhat anecdotal. But airlines are saying that the, the load factors, the number of passengers that they're seeing is just going down and down and down. Um, could they save money? Uh, sure. Um, a lot of the workers are still getting paid. Um, air aviation, especially in the U.S., is very unionized. So you have these contracts in place. Um, so cutting off traffic suddenly wouldn't immediately save money. And airlines are going to be economically challenged for a while, regardless um, whether they put planes on the ground. The issue is that it, with all of these states of emergency that we're seeing, orders to stay home, business travel is pretty much ground to a halt. Leisure travel, same thing. Nobody is wants to or is in many cases allowed to leave uh, their homes and communities and, and they don't want to travel. Um, but it, it's sort of like kind of death by a thousand cuts is what we've heard from a lot of airline executives that just kind of getting um, cutting like 100 flights at a time and then 100 more. And if they just did sort of a blanket ban from the government and if it was coming from the government, it's something that they have to comply with it might be a little bit easier for them. And that way they can focus on things like moving cargo around, which some of the passenger carriers are already doing. We're talking with CNBC a Business Network reporter, Leslie Josephs, one of her beats covering the airline industry. I'd like to hear from you if you work in the industry, if you're a flight attendant, if you're a mechanic, if you're a pilot, if you work in the terminal, you provide support services that directly deal with the air, airline industry. We're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722. What are you experiencing with the um, airline that you fly with or that you work for? What are you seeing here in Southern California related to air travel and the industry? 866-893-5722. With us, the international president of the Association of Flight Flight attendants, the union representing 50,000 flight attendants across 20 airlines, Sarah Nelson. Sarah, we appreciate your being with us again on AirTalk. Thank you very much. What would this mean for your members if all the flights were grounded? Would your members still be paid? We have union contracts across 80% of the industry. And so there are certain pay protections for a period of time. But what we are already seeing with the pull down of flights because of the demand is that it's affecting essentially 70% of the workforce uh, for the long term. So there are pay protections now, but the reality is that without direct government relief uh, in the coming days that we're talking about, the airlines would not be able to make payroll within a couple months, uh, if not within a couple weeks. Uh, So we know that even though we have contractual protections, we have to actually have the ability to meet those contractual protections for the airlines. And today that just doesn't exist in the very near term. How are flight attendants typically compensated? Is it uh, on a per-mile basis? Is it a a fixed salary that they receive subject to a certain number of flights or flight miles that they're on? How how do they get paid? 
Normally, it is the number of hours that they are actually in the air. And what that, um, what that includes is once you pull away from the gate and to the moment that you pull back up to the gate, uh, that is considered our hourly rate. We are hourly rate employees. Now, Southwest and uh, Alaska are structured slightly differently, but it's very comparable. And so when we don't have those hours to fly, uh, we don't get paid except for our contractual minimums. I will tell you, all, already flight attendants are feeling a cut in their paychecks because the flight started to get pulled down in January. That means that overtime hours were not available. The airlines have been running at high productivity for many years, and so many people work overtime to make ends meet, and that has not been available for the past couple months. So they're already seeing a hit in their paychecks, but now we're looking at massive furloughs without relief. Do you have a sense of what percentage of your members have been drawing overtime recently? A, a very large percentage, percentage. So the overtime hours may range, uh, but near uh, close to eighty percent of the flight attendants work overtime hours wow. to make uh, to make their bills. So that becomes a necessary. That overtime becomes critical because they're they're counting on that uh, every month. We're talking with Sarah Nelson, international president of the Association of Flight Attendants. Leslie Josephs, CNBC reporter who covers the airline industry. Uh, Henry. In Highland Park, you're on AirTalk. Um, what uh, what type of job do you have in the industry? Uh, hi, Larry. Yes, I'm, I'm a first officer with a regional airline based out of LAX. All right. Long story short, I've been pretty much fattening up this whole month, picking up every flight I could before uh, we, we essentially have all our hours cut at least in half next month. And we're still awaiting schedules from main lines. Uh, we have United. We're still waiting on schedules for Delta and American. So... And so you work for one of the regional airlines that also doubles up with some of the uh, national carriers? Correct. Uh, yeah. It's uh, like when you hop on any regional airline, it'll say uh, American Eagle or United, Ex- uh, yeah, United Express. Sure. By so-and-so. And uh, so we work for all three. And uh, other regionals are just essentially we have two at least uh, that fell that are done in April. So, you know, it's essentially an endurance contest for us right now. We're not sure if we're getting any bailout. We do have, fortunately, we are fortunate enough that we do have a nice cash fund for any days like this. But um, right now, we're, everyone is just essentially fattening up for the long haul. And, you know, like I said, we can get our schedules cut any day. And if they stop all air traffic, uh, we should be guaranteed. But in times of crisis like this, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not expecting. Yeah, they have to have the money to pay you. And uh, did you say that your regional airline is not unionized? None of the employees are union members. Uh, not ours, no. Okay. What kind of what kind of um, passenger loads have you been taking on recent flights? Oh boy, uh, a quarter at best. Uh, we're 50, uh, you know, we operate fifty seaters or seventy six seaters. But we're uh, my last uh, my last day of flying. I think I took four passengers. So wow. at one point and a one on one flight. And so one person on one flight. Can you ballpark what the cost of that flight was for that individual? Oh, boy. Uh, let's see. I think that, well, they essentially had their own private jet from <laughs> at that point from San Luis Obispo to L.A. So uh, uh, operating costs, I don't know, maybe like two or three grand. I mean, we it's a we run pretty efficiently, but uh but yeah, still, yeah, two or three thousand dollars for a regional flight. Uh, Henry in Highland Park joining us. So, Henry, when's the last time you were able to to um, get on a flight? 
Um, I just finished up yesterday. Okay. Uh, I, I got a well, I got a few more flights uh, coming up uh, this weekend if they don't get canceled. But uh, uh, right now, obviously, the big question is what's happening in April. So we are, like I said, a lot of us, a lot of people are going on a voluntary leave if they can, if they can afford it. And those of us who can't, you know, we're on reserve or, you know, we're definitely seeing a big hour cut, but we're not going to complain because well, we obviously still have jobs right now. So, um, yeah, that's pretty much it for that's what we're looking at right now. So it's a, just a giant wait and see contest right now. Henry, I appreciate your calling and talking about what's like for you as a regional pilot. We're at 866-893-KPECC. If you work at any capacity in the um, air travel industry, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts about what you've been experiencing and with the potential that domestic air travel in the United States could be halted. 866 866- 893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Let me go back to Leslie Josephs of of CNBC. Uh, Sarah Nelson was bringing up the point that even with their contractual minimums and union terms of the contracts, if if the airlines don't have the money to pay, people aren't going to be paid. So how big a bailout is, is contemplated to enable the airlines to fulfill the employment contracts? Yeah, it, it, all eyes are really on Washington now, and, and lawmakers say they are getting close to a deal. But the airline, the U.S. airline industry was seeking $58 billion, and that would be half in grants that wouldn't have to be paid back, and the other half in loans. Um, the original Senate Republican proposal that came out fell short of that. It was all in loans. Um, and the concern there is that it would uh, hamstring airlines while they're going through a recovery with so much debt that it would make the recovery that much harder and, and maybe even unfeasible. Um, but there has been some movement and what we're hearing from Washington on the Senate side um, and also on the House side is that uh, it looks like airlines might be able to get those grants. Airlines, uh, the U.S. airlines have committed to not furloughing any employees. This is an industry that employs about 750,000 people directly um, and hundreds of thousands of others indirectly um, through contractors and, and so forth. Um, that they would get those grants and not furlough anybody through August 31st. Um, one of the things that's so challenging about this situation and, and the veteran executives that have been through 9-11 that currently head airlines now say that this is worse than 9-11 is that nobody knows when this is going to end um, and how the disease is going to pan out in the United States in big cities and big markets um, that have been so lucrative for airlines for the past decade. So that's the challenge. Well, and, and, um, and you wonder how quickly people will start flying again um, because there's going to be what public health authorities say about potential risk and how the public perceives the risk at that time when people, uh, you know, when flying starts opening up again. And that may be more of a lag, I don't know, than after 9-11, although certainly there were security concerns and people were still frightened about flying once flights resumed after 9-11. But many people also went to work after 9-11, and now we have an economy that's pretty much slowing to a standstill, at least in many cities, and and now it seems like it's picking up into manufacturing and other places. But it's not just people going back to work, and we're going to go back to where we were on January 15th, say, just to pick a random date. Like We're kind of staring down a recession, and it's not just the fact that whether people are going to be afraid to fly or whether their employers will allow them to take business trips, but if they're going to have the money to do that. And if you've been so frightened by uh, by this disease and the implications and, and what your risks are by going out to 
a restaurant, um, how is that going to be when people uh, consider a trip? Will they be able to do without that? Um, that's an unknown. We don't know that. Maybe people will be so cooped up that they want to fly as soon as possible because they want to get out of their houses and go to a beach somewhere. Yeah. We don't know. And, and I think that's just a big question mark for the industry right now. We're talking with Leslie Josephs of CNBC. She covers airlines for the Financial Network. Also with us, Sarah Nelson of the Association of Flight Attendants, the union representing 50,000 flight attendants across 20 airlines. She's the international president of the union. Uh, Sarah, uh, the protections that are offered in exchange for the potential bailout, are those, do you think, sufficient for your members? Well, Larry, I want to be really clear that the package that the Democrats and uh, the White House that is currently on the table was the package that we put forward from our union and from aviation labor. And so originally the airlines were asking for grants that they could use and determine how to use. And we came and said, no, those grants need to be used to keep the payroll going. So they are entirely designated to pay the salaries of the airline workers who are on, who are working today. So whether they're going to be on the job or just in their job so that we can hit pause and restart the industry again when the threat is over, um, that remains to be seen about how many people will actually be working out there with the state of the industry. But it will keep the paychecks going to everyone and force no involuntary furloughs. So there's some good news for Henry, uh, who called in earlier, that we have designed this package so that it is working workers-focused, workers-first, and those grants will be used to pay the payroll and keep people on the jobs and keep people connected to their health care. Thank you so much, Sarah Nelson. Good to talk with you again. We appreciate it. And we wish your members all the best during this very, very difficult time for them, as well as all the other employees working in the many different jobs across the airline industry. Leslie Joseph, CNBC reporter, thank you also for being with us and for your reporting on this very important economic topic. Thank you. It's Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. Coming up in just a couple of minutes, we're going to be taking a look at what provisions are being made for homeless Angelinos needing shelter, uh, but also needing to physically distance in the era of COVID-19. Your financial support right now of Air Talk on KPCC takes us a huge way toward being able to bring you these kinds of in-depth conversations, the kind of reporting that we really need to hear to know what's going on, particularly uh, for those that are among the most vulnerable of our neighbors. Your financial support right now at 866-888-5722 also is is matched dollar for dollar as part of a $20,000 challenge from one of our longtime KPECC AirTalk listener members. We are 185 members away from reaching that $20,000 challenge. It's a day-long challenge. Began with 300 members from whom we needed to hear. We are already over 50 AirTalk listener members who've come into the fold. So right now we are counting on you as we've suspended our typical fundraising. I'm just a couple times an hour uh, trying to more gently remind you of how important it is you help us reach this overall million dollars that we need to raise during this spring member period. It's the only way that we're going to be able to keep our staffing up, keep our service up to you during this unknown 
period of time, unknown duration of the effects of COVID-19 and the public health measures we're taking to try and control the spread of the virus. Please help us right now. 866-888-5722, kpcc.org. Oh, I just got an update. 170 more to go. Whoa, that's wonderful. 170 more to go. Thank you so much. 866-888-5722. Coming up, we'll talk about homeless Angelinos, what's being done to help provide them with safe shelter. President Trump taking part today in a Fox News virtual town hall said he's hoping the country will be reopened by Easter He said he's weighing how to deal with the physical distancing guidelines that have kept many workers working at home or off the job amid COVID-19. As many public health officials are calling for stricter uh, measures to try and keep people from spreading COVID-19, the president said today in the Fox News virtual town hall that he's looking toward easing uh, the restrictions that have kept workers uh, from the workplace and have led to school closures as well. The president said, I'd love to have the country opened up and just raring to go by Easter. So we have a potential conflict between what the president would like to see with easing of some of those um, physical distancing restrictions and what public health officials have been calling for. Um, So that, of course, uh, and there is just an obvious tension between those two, the economy on one hand and um, uh, efforts to try and and stem the spread of COVID-19 on the other. We turn our attention now to one of the highly vulnerable populations of Southern Californians, those who don't have a regular place to live, living in homeless encampments, living in their cars, uh, living uh, in other forms of shelter that aren't necessarily the best for protecting them for from COVID-19. The question is, what's what's going to be available to people that are, are homeless uh, to be able to increase their physical protections. Joining us from Los Angeles Homeless Service Authority, known as LASA, is the Interim Executive Director, Heidi Marston. Heidi, thank you for joining us again on AirTalk. What sort of measures is the County of Los Angeles uh, taking towards providing safe places for people without shelter to go? So LASA as a joint powers is working with the city and the county to do a few things. One, we're really focused on making sure that our existing capacity that we have for sheltering folks, so these more than 7,000 beds that we have across our system, are able to stay open um, and staffed appropriately so that we're not losing capacity. Um, We're also very focused on building new capacity to include uh, our winter shelter programs have been expanded through the end of uh, September rather than ending in March. Uh, That's another 900 or so beds across our system, as well as partnering with the city to bring on new congregate sites uh, at park and rec facilities so that we have additional capacity there, too, to bring folks indoors. We're really focused on making sure that this highly vulnerable population has access to shelter as well as to hygiene services. So um, hygiene services both inside and outdoors to include 300 new mobile hand washing stations that have been deployed across the entire county. So again, our focus really is on this 
the very vulnerable population and getting the most vulnerable inside uh, so that they remain safe. I would think, you know, and this is this is just a uh, surmising on my part because I've never lived in this circumstance, but I would think that if I'm living in my car or living in a tent, that I might find that preferable to going into a shelter where I'd be worried uh, that other residents would be coming up to me, getting into close contact, and that even if the facility um, attempted to enforce physical distancing, that that wouldn't be guaranteed in that it's hard to control what people do inside a shelter. Um, Your response to that concern, if that is a concern that some homeless Angelinos have. So, of course, people have a choice of whether or not they want to come inside. So we're doing we're taking two approaches on that. The first approach is for those folks who would rather stay in their tent for whatever reason, that they have access to food and hygiene services so that their safety is maintained while they're on the street. Um, For those who are coming outside, we're adhering to guidelines from the CDC and Department of Public Health to maintain a six-foot distance between our beds, um, to make sure that the janitorial services are ramped up so the facilities are staying clean, doing everything we can to make sure that the sites that we do have available are are hygienic and clean and um, using the social distancing rules that we've all been adhering to so everybody is as safe as possible. I'd like to hear from AirTalk listeners who are living uh, in cars or living in a tent. If you're squatting in a place that was vacant that you were able to uh, get into, uh, if if you don't have a regular uh, place to live with a roof over your head, I'd like to hear what you think about these efforts to provide additional shelters and what would you like to see that would help you feel comfortable uh, if you feel like where you're at isn't the safest place, comfortable going to some other living situation. 866-893-KPCC, 866-893-5722. If you're living on the street, so to speak, in any sort of a typical living circumstance, um, what what are your biggest concerns about COVID-19 and also what would be most helpful for you in in improving the kinds of health situation in which you live? 866-893-5722. You can also post on the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Also joining us is Valicia Adams-Kellum, president and CEO of St. Joseph Center, which is based in Venice, but services all all of Los Angeles County. The agency works with working poor families as well as homeless individuals. Uh, Valicia, thank you for being with us again. We appreciate it very much. Your thoughts about the challenges of providing shelter in the era of COVID-19? Well, it is a challenge. Uh, St. Joseph Center has a number of outreach workers who out, are out and about and connecting with people and making sure that they know that shelters are available, that we are ramping up, and we're particularly focusing on individuals who are high risk, over 50, with multiple physical issues, and who are frightened and want to come indoors. All right. And are are you finding it difficult, though, with shelters to, to sometimes um, get all the residents uh, to observe the physical distancing? Well, we are engaging with the homeless population in a number of ways. We have a cafe where we're handing out meals. We have teams that are getting people to the bus lineups to get to the shelters. 
We have a pantry that is serving about 105 uh, bags each day. And what we're finding is that people are welcoming the help. They're willing to abide by the regulations. They don't want to get sick. They're frightened like we all are. And we're finding that they're willing to do whatever it takes to stay safe. So while we know that there's a challenge in shelter spaces to adhere to the regulations, we've been really impressed about what clients are willing to do once informed to stay safe. And and I don't want to imply in my question um, that those who are unhoused are not mentally competent because, of course, the vast majority are and are aware of what's going on. They're, you know, they pay attention to the news, too, and are highly informed. I'm looking to hear from those individuals right now at 866-893-KPCC. But we also know that there are some individuals with mental health challenges, might have cognitive challenges, and um, might not fully realize the extent of, of COVID-19. The Reverend Andy Bale, CEO of Union Rescue Mission, Skid Row, joining us. Andy, good to have you with us again. Um, are you finding it challenging to be able to keep that six-foot physical buffer? I've been reminding folks, even as I pass through the mission today, just uh, we held chapel uh, through Facebook Live. We did it to simulcast last week. Uh, but even then, as I go by, we are we are reminding folks over and over, staff and guests, uh, it's just very hard. I think we're people who like to hug and give each other high fives. I gave a, a fellow a virtual high five in, in chapel today. Uh, one thing I am noticing, um, that not only are people coming in, we're, our meals are up 33% just the first day. It's It's gone up. 33%? And you serve a lot of meals anyway. 3,000 meals, and it's gone. it went up 33% the first day. It's gone up every day. And what I'm noticing is in this crisis, people are wanting to linger. Uh, other missions are doing grab-and-go sack lunches, but we're still doing hot meals. And, folks, it's very hard to get them to go uh, in order for the next group to come in because folks are wanting to clean a little bit and draw draw into community and have a have a feeling of home. Uh, and, and so we're... We're not having any problem getting people to come in. It's uh, it's who, when our guests, outside guests, come in, they really, they really just want to linger and stay. Well, it's got to be a challenge to have the distancing too when people are sitting down to eat when you're not doing the grab and go. And I want to come back to that, but Denny's calling us from the city of Orange. Denny, I understand you live in your van, and um, what would be most beneficial for you at, during this time of COVID nineteen? I'd like to just see all the businesses open back up because I'm pretty, uh, you know, I've got no place to really take a shower. Uh, you know, I've got no place to work out. I got I used to go to the library all day and spend the day in there. And now I'm just sitting in my van watching the rain come down. Well, and, and it's got to be hard because I know a lot of people, I don't know if this was your case, Denny, but used gyms and if they could afford a gym membership, that became where they would go shower and and that would that would be their, you know, sanitary facility. Uh, it, I don't know if that's true for you or any other people in similar circumstance. Well, that's true for me. I, about half the guys that go to the gym are uh, homeless. Yeah. Uh, but now that it's closed. You know, I got a friend who's giving me showers about tw- times a week now. I got to drive there. I was driving there as we I got on the air here, and uh, I just started to stop and waited for the call. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm heading over for a shower now. 
Well, you you got to feel pretty isolated, though, too, because if you're in your van, particularly when it's raining and you're not going to be standing outside um, and you're observing that that buffer, I assume, it's got to it's got to be difficult. Is this weighing on you? Oh, yeah. Well, the, the, it's only really bad in the rain. OK, if it's the sun is shining, it's not bad. If it's even cold, it's not too bad because I've got clothing. Yeah. Uh, but I've got a park here. I just, you know, pull the chair out and sit under the tree. And I, I know a lot of the neighbors and the cops know me. And they just wave as they drive by. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty convenient, actually. So. Danny, your your phone's cutting out. But, hey, thank you so much for being the first caller. We're asking for listeners to wear talk who are homeless uh, or living in their vans or living in a tent, um, living maybe in a place you've, you've squatted and, and taken over something that was abandoned. Uh, wherever you're getting shelter, what would be most beneficial for you, uh, particularly in this era of COVID-19 when you have to observe the six-foot buffer with other folks? 866 Three KPECC, Polly in Long Beach. I understand you're also living in your van. Yes, I am actually, and um, I don't find any problems other than the fact, like your previous caller, um, taking a shower has been a big uh, problem for me. Um, my van's very comfortable. I was thinking about getting one of those solar showers, but then it's kind of difficult to hang it up on a tree in the park. So uh, I just really want to wash my hair so bad. Yeah. Yeah, I can I can only imagine it's got to be really challenging when you're used to uh being able to be clean and and then the showers have just gone away. Is it the gym closures that's hit you the hardest? Yep, that's the gym. I joined uh, Planet Fitness. It's very reasonably priced. I go pretty much every day and um that's been a problem for me and uh, I'm starting to feel really disgusting right now. I just, because of my hair. I can take a body body wash, you know, and uh, clean myself that way. But my hair is something else. Yeah, that's that's got to be a challenge. And and are you able to get into the park restrooms at all, or um, are they closed? Right now, they are open, thank God, because um, going to the bathroom has been an issue because a lot of the restaurants, as you know, are closed. And uh, right now, the park bathrooms are open, although someone did take all the toilet paper. Oh, gosh. Mm-hmm. Polly, uh, our thoughts are with you during uh, the difficult time. And, and uh, I think, you know, as you're describing it, this is clearly a problem for many folks not having access to those gym showers. Polly in Long Beach talking about her experience. When we continue with our guests on Air Talk, we'll get some ideas from them uh, for those that are living in their cars, their vans, in tents, or in other. Uh, make-do kind of housing, what would be most helpful for you, particularly with COVID-19 and its effects on closures, physical distancing, all the other things that are going on? 866-893-5722. And I also want to say to all of our many listeners who are unhoused, listening to Air Talk, we think about you a lot. And you're sharing what you're going through with thousands of other people who do care very much about your life circumstances. We'll be back shortly. Good morning. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. We're talking about homeless Angelinos 
and how they're adapting, if they can, to the public health restrictions as a part of COVID-19. We've heard from a couple of listeners talk about living in their vans and the challenge of not having access to the showers at the gym where they could typically clean up uh, all these things that are an essential part of life and um, how do people that are in more challenging circumstances for where they live deal with that? We're at 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Let's talk with Reggie in Baldwin Park. Reggie, I I've, I've underst- understand you've been in your car for about five days. Is that right? Yes. Yes, I have. For the last five days, been with some symptoms, and I don't want to, you know, expose anybody to the virus, so I've been isolating myself in the car. Have you gone to an emergency room? I did. I did, and the um, first I wanted to get tested, because I do have family here, but I don't want to be the burden of, you know, the contagion. So um, I was turned away, saying that it has to be almost life-threatening before I get tested. What are what are the symptoms you're experiencing? Very briefly. Oh, uh, it, it was uh, the um, the throat, and then uh, the coughing, the uh, runny nose, the aches. Okay. And um, uh, it started off with diarrhea. That kind of um, went away for a while now, but. Um, yeah, which has got to be incredibly challenging when you're living in your car. Um, so, Reggie, they did they tell you to come back if the if the symptoms persisted? Well, the the option that I got is that in, for life threatening, where I can't I can't just do anything about it, where I, you know it's I can't breathe, then that's when I call nine one one. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Reggie, hey, we wish you the best. This has to be extremely difficult. How are you um, finding restroom facilities? And, you know, particularly when you're sick and your energy has to be very depleted. Mm-hmm. Yes. How are how are you finding places? Um, just uh, <laughs> the drive through Starbucks and then to eat and, and then uh, some public parks. They're still open for the restrooms. Yeah. But it is getting pretty, as they say, ripe as far as uh, needing a shower and so forth. Can your local family members, uh, even if you're isolating from them, can they bring you food? Can they bring you things that you need? Oh, yes, yes. And and uh, we've been talking to them. But my priority was to get tested so that way, you know, I could be sure. Yeah. Uh, it's not <clears throat> it's not there. Well, testing is becoming more available. We understand um certainly in the city of Los Angeles. Reggie, uh, hold on, let me go back to Heidi Marston of the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority. She's interim executive director of LASA. Heidi, do you have any advice for Reggie? So there are a couple things. One, on LASA.org, you can find an online portal that's an interactive map that has both access to showers and bathrooms that are positioned around the entire county. So you can see if there's mobile showers or showers available near you, and that's something we update daily. Um, In terms of symptoms and how you're feeling, um, keeping in touch with either your primary care provider or the medical professionals if your symptoms persist to make sure that you're getting the treatment you need. We are um, working in L.A. County very, um, very diligently to get expanded testing capabilities, particularly for our population of people who are experiencing homelessness. Reggie, we wish you uh, all the best. Are you covered by health insurance or are you a Medi-Cal recipient to where you have more options than just the emergency room? 
Yes, I do have the Medi-Cal. Okay, good. I, All right. Yes, I'm, I'm with Altamid. Um, okay. I didn't quite get the um, the organization that's... Oh, it's LASA, and, and so the acronym is L-A-H-S-A. The H is for homeless. L.A. Homeless Services Authority, L-A-H-S-A. And Heidi, what was the full website address again? It's lahsa.org, and you can go to our COVID-19 page and find a map with all of the the hygiene resources that are available. All right, Reg, and glad to hear you've got Medi-Cal, so so you have some additional uh, options for health care as well. Thank you so much for being with us. Reverend Andy Bales, uh, Union Rescue Mission CEO, we've heard so far from three uh, Southern California residents who are homeless, uh, living in their vehicles. Y- your thoughts about, you know, just the scope of this? Well, first of all, I'd like to invite Reggie to come. Um, we're taking in guests. <clears throat> who have symptoms, and they're walking in. One walked in this morning uh, who likely had a verified uh, COVID-19, walked down our ramp with a local nurse uh, from a clinic and went straight to our gym and in quarantine, and we have restrooms available, showers available. Hold, hold, hold on just a second, Andy. Reggie, can you stay on the line? We're going to give you the phone number for you to call Union Rescue Mission. So, Reggie, hang on. Sorry, uh, Andy, I just didn't want him to hang up before we got him that info. Continue on, please. Have him call me at 626-260-4761, and I'll uh, arrange with him to, to meet us here. And uh, we, we decided to post outside if you have symptoms, come in. Don't suffer on the streets. Um, and, and like I said, just this morning, a, f- a fellow walked down the ramp with a nurse and, and came. But the scope of this is, is huge. And to think that anybody is out there suffering alone is is beyond my belief. But yeah. I know help is coming. And I reached out directly to Washington, D.C. Everybody that I've met in Washington, D.C. and with, with our local nurse just said, please, we need medical supplies. We need... Uh, we need staff to who are trained in, in FEMA-like intervention, uh, Red Cross-like intervention. Uh, you know, we need it uh, more urgently than ever. And as you know, Larry, I've been cr- crying for a FEMA-like response since 2015. And it's, it's just unfortunate that it's taken a pandemic to get us to step up. And my hope is when we do step up and get everybody off the streets who wants to, uh, that we don't just let them fall back on the streets, that this will be the new normal of keeping people under a roof. All right. Hey, Reggie, stay on the line. We're going to pick up, and Fiona Ng, our senior producer, will give you that number again so you can reach out directly to Andy Bales at Union Rescue Mission. 866-893-KPECC. We're setting aside this time to talk with AirTalk listeners who are living in their cars, in tents, uh, who are living under overpasses, places. Uh, you know, maybe you're living off a trail somewhere or in a building that's been abandoned, and and you've made a home for yourself there. What are your biggest challenges that you're facing with COVID-19? What would be most helpful for you? 866-893-KPECC. Valicia Adams-Kellum of St. Joseph's Center. Uh, they're not all single individuals, of course. You've got families who are experiencing homelessness, and they're concerned about you know protecting particularly older members of the family. Um, your thoughts about what resources are available specifically for them? 
Well, my heart, I, I want to say, goes out to Reggie, and I was hoping uh, that you'd get him to stay on, and we'd like to get his phone number because we can call him immediately. We've got it. We've got it so we can share it with all of you. Help. So between Andy and I, we should be in a position to get him the help he needs. I'm just so sorry to hear about his situation. But as for the families, we are in a situation where we're uh, putting families that we find out there in motels immediately. We want to make sure that they're safe. And as you probably heard, St. Joseph Center recently used uh, trailers uh, that were available, uh, made available by the governor. And we put families in uh, those trailers in three weeks' time. And those families would have literally been on the streets and dying if we hadn't been able to get them in. So I am just, you know, heartbroken that there are families and individuals like Reggie out there and the motels are, are available. We are negotiating with them as we speak now, and they are responding. And we're thankful to our funders for making extra uh, revenue available to make sure we get families off the street and safe. And um, let's talk a little bit about uh, motels and hotels, because obviously so many properties now are sitting vacant because of, of the lack of travel and tourism. Are there atypical kinds of hotels that might now be available for people who are homeless to, to take shelter in? Well, it's interesting that you ask that. We've got some uh, staff who are working from home and now have additional time to make calls. And we're calling far and wide. And if you hear of any uh, hotels, motels out there who are willing to assist, please let us know because um, more and more families are worried. There's older adults in some of those spaces where they're living on couches and so they're becoming more vulnerable and needing alternative plans. And so we are, we're calling uh, the motels up and finding out what they need. Uh, as Andy said, we need supplies. The, the motels are having trouble uh, acquiring the supplies that they need to stay safe, but many have um, expressed a willingness to help. All right. Uh, we're emailing all of you Reggie's uh, number uh, so that you can contact him, so you can um, be on the lookout for that email. Fiona's getting that to you. Again, we're talking with AirTalk listeners who are living uh, in temporary shelter, tents, cars, vans, RVs, whatever the circumstance is, and the typical stresses that you've experienced have been magnified as a result of COVID-19. We already heard from listeners about the huge effect of the gyms closing because of physical distancing, and that being the place where they could get showered, get cleaned up every day, and not having access to that. Uh, we're at 866-893-KPECC, or the AirTalk page kpcc.org we'll be back in just one minute I just want to quickly update you where we are in fundraising at KPCC as we've suspended 
our typical on-air fundraising so that we can bring you coverage of COVID-19 and the effects of the physical distancing public health measures that have been enacted. Uh, We have a $20,000 member challenge that's going on today. And right now, we are 160 members away from fulfilling it. We've had a tremendous outpouring of support from listeners on AirTalk so far today. We really need to hear from you right now. It slowed down just a little bit in the last half hour. But... Uh, You've experienced the power of the calls from our members and the reach that we have with this program, the wonderful guests who are joining us right now who've devoted their lives professionally and in many cases personally, too, to helping to ease uh, the burden of homelessness here in Southern California. And you've been hearing from the individuals who've been living in their car, their van, talking about how COVID-19 has affected them and and the even more limited resources available for their daily lives. We invite you now to support this kind of coverage that you've been hearing day after day after day. Different industries that are affected, public health officials answering your questions, talking about people in among the most vulnerable populations. Please support it financially right now, particularly when your gift leverages 20,000 additional dollars. 866-888-5722-866-888-5722. Or you can go to the website, kpcc.org, and make your contribution there. I'd love to get this down to 100 left to go. That might not be realistic on my part, but... Boy, would that be a wonderful show of community support uh, from you as an AirTalk listener joined by all your listening colleagues. Thank you very much. Uh, Let's see. Joaquin tweets at AirTalk, learned this morning the L.A. mayor has opened recreational centers for housing. What are the logistics? How many people to an open space? Uh, It seems like this creates problems, especially if putting them all together without testing the people going into the shelters. Heidi Marston, uh, interim executive director, director of the L.A. Homeless Services Authority. Can you share with us a bit how this is going to work? Absolutely. There are currently eight sites that are throughout the city of L.A. right now. Um, the goal is to get up to 42. And um, we are observing the social distancing in those sites, so six feet apart from each bed. And before folks come in, they receive a health screening that includes taking their temperature, monitoring for symptoms. Um, if folks are symptomatic, um, we make sure that they get the care and the services they need so we're not putting others at risk. So whether that's um, connecting them with the Department of Health Services or their medical provider, um, and then also throughout the day and throughout the night, making sure that we're monitoring folks, that everybody's remaining healthy. Um, but again, these sites are intended to serve our population that are the most vulnerable. And as Valisha mentioned earlier, these, these individuals who are over 50, over 55, who have medical conditions, um, who we need to make sure we're protecting from this. Um, there are currently no confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the homeless population. Um, but all that to say, we're planning and we're preparing as much as we can. And these um, these sites are a big part of that plan. Uh, James uh, writes on the AirTalk page, Burbank has set up portable bathrooms and hand-washing stations. Uh, Heidi, what's going on in L.A. County and other locations to provide that? 
There have been just over 300 um, stations, hand-washing stations, mobile showers that have been set up across the county. Um, we are urging and continue to urge municipalities across L.A. County to continue to ramp up those services, um, particularly, as you've heard, a, a high need for showers and a, and a very large need for bathrooms and hand-washing stations. So maintaining um, existing bathrooms that are open, that are public restrooms, is very critical across the county um, and doing everything we can to bring in those portable resources and again um, an access map for those resources so you can see where we've been citing them um, is available on lasa.org our website um, and you can get a live interactive update so you know um, which resources are closest to you if you are experiencing homelessness john in santa monica you're on air talk i'm trying to locate my brother alba and um he's in shared housing and the libraries are closed so I can't connect with him on the internet and his phone. I don't think he's been able to pay the bill. So you're trying to connect with your, your brother without him having internet or phone access. Um, Andy Bales, Union Rescue Mission, you have any advice for how people can connect up with homeless family members? Well, you can, uh, a lot of people reach out to us on Facebook and we put up flyers. Uh, they, they send us flyers and we put up flyers and uh, then we can help the person contact the family. So if, if he'd like to uh, uh, call me or uh, reach out to me in any way, uh, just call me at 626-260-4761 and I'll work with him to do do what we can and uh, do all we can. John, uh, yeah, hang on. Were you going to say something, John? I'm sorry. Two six zero four seven six one. What was six two six area code? Is the number and John. We wish you the best in in finding your brother. Uh, very stressful, I'm sure, to be in that circumstance where you're trying to find a vulnerable family member and the means of contact are no longer available during this time of COVID nineteen. I want to thank you all so much. Um, For many of us, it's hard to imagine the stress that you're operating under, trying to get people into shelter, trying to abide by the public health restrictions of COVID-19. And so my thanks to Valicia Adams-Kellum, the president and CEO of St. Joseph's Center, which serves Los Angeles County, Andy Bale, CEO of Union Rescue Mission, and Heidi Marston of the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority. She's interim executive director of LASA. My appreciation to you yet again. Thank you for being a part of Southern California's largest daily conversation. In fact, we can get together and talk about our challenges, our joys, and the changes in our lives each day in some small way. I do think makes it better. And I appreciate your participating in whatever way you can in our program. We continue to ask for your financial support at 866-888-5722. We have 145 members to go and a $20,000 challenge. We nearly missed it yesterday, but today we know we can do it with your help. Thank you.